Hello again, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Animation Fascination. I'm Mark Vibbert, and with me again, as always, is Matt Quest. Hey! Uh, joining us a little bit later in the show will be our special guest, Cal Brunker, who is the director of Rainmaker Entertainment's Escape from Planet Earth. Be sure to listen to that, because I bet it's going to be a pretty awesome interview. Uh, in case you haven't listened to our podcast before, we focus on the entire world of animation. Each episode, we talk about an animated series or film from the past or present, whether it's traditionally hand-drawn, computer-generated, stop-motion if it's animated, we talk about it. So we'll be back in a few seconds talking about the new releases that came out this past week. Our new releases this week, the first one uh, was theatrical release, DreamWorks spring release of The Crudes. Uh, Matt, we had talked about the trailer before for this. Uh, were, you, were you looking forward to this all? I know that you didn't get a chance to see it yet, but I just kind of well, wanted to hear again about what you thought about. Yeah, my opinion kind of changed. I remember when the first trailer came out. You know, I didn't really like the design of the characters and we didn't really get to see a lot of the environment. And then, you know, as like this, the world opened up in like the uh, later trailers, you know, it started to, you know, spark my interest a little bit. So I'd be, I'd, I'll be really interested to see, you know, the scenery in the background. I, I really like that kind of thing. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I'll be interested to see it. Uh, me and Patrick and, and Justin actually got to go see this, not this weekend, but we went to a, a screening last week. I'm going to have to work on getting you to be able to go to screenings in New York, too. Yeah. But the, the film is set in the prehistoric era when man's position as a leader of the hunt is threatened by the arrival of a prehistoric genius who comes up with a revolutionary new inventions like fire as they trek through a dangerous but exotic land in search of a new home. Uh, and... What I thought was cool about this is, like, the, the beginning of the film is, you know, like, really gray. It's all, like, set in, like, this drab kind of world since Emma Stone's character, Eve. Like, she just feels like she she hasn't got to experience, like, any other world of stuff. But then, like, when, when more or less, the, the first apocalypse, I guess, comes. Uh, <laughs> Wait, is there going to be any spoilers? Remember, I haven't seen this yet. Th this is all stuff that you can see in the trailer. Okay, good. All right. Uh, when this big earthquake comes, it opens up in this world of color and new things come to life to her and she gets to experience all these new things. And me and Patrick really enjoyed it a lot. I'm not, I, th I think Justin enjoyed it, but not as much as he like tries with the guardians. And that's kind of where I'm at with it, where I think it's more on par with like the Matt, like for me personally, I don't, I don't know everybody else's opinion where where it's kind of more with the Madagascar and Monsters vs. the Aliens films than it is with, say, Rise of the Guardians or yeah. Kung Fu Panda or How to Train Your Dragon. Uh, I mean, I did I did enjoy it a lot more than I did think I was going to, though. I liked, I think the the standout voice actors for it though were definitely Emma Stone as Eep, uh, Nicolas Cage as as Grug, and yeah. Ryan Reynolds as Guy. So I'm looking forward. Ryan Reynolds' voice work for DreamWorks' second film this year, uh, Turbo, later in the year. And, and definitely the, the standout like character that doesn't really have any lines that, of course, 
my my son loved was Belt, which is actually voiced by one of the directors of the film, Chris Sanders, who big Disney fans will also know voiced Stitch in the Lilo and Stitch film. So, and was also the director of that too. But yeah, I, I would definitely recommend going to see this in theaters. It, it is worth paying the the ticket price. The 3D, uh, I take it or leave it for it. <laughs> It wasn't as, I mean, Isn't that great? yeah, I mean, there was definitely scenes where it, it stands out and, you know, really helps for that, the added, you know, like when, the, when you see the, the new, like colorful world for the first time, it like really helps with that. And because I think they also downplayed the 3d in the beginning of the film where it's like less color and everything. So that way, when it kind of like, when I talked about Oz, the great and powerful, where it, it's kind of got that segue where it goes from this really dark kind of gray world to this huge, colorful, new experiences kind of thing, and you get to involve yourself more into it. And I really liked the character designs for how, for the animals in this, there's like some hybrids with different animals, and like the maconivore, which is kind of like a hybrid between a, a macaw parrot and a saber-toothed tiger, so that, that was pretty awesome. Uh, sl- belt is pretty much a sloth, and then there's like these birds that are that look like sea turtles, but instead of you know like their fins, they have these colorful wings. Uh, there's like these ferret kind of creatures that have a shared tail, so they're always connected wow. to each other. And there's just some really other cool things. There's like a kind of like a raccoon, crocodile, dog mixture thing and land whales and all, all these really cool imaginative kind of, of animals within the film. So I would definitely say to check it out. And I just posted it on our, our Twitter feed last night. If you have Netflix, uh, I'm assuming now with their new deal, like we talked about a few weeks ago with Turbo going to having is going to be having their animated series on there later this year. DreamWorks signed some deal with Netflix. So there's actually behind the scenes, like 15 minute or so thing for the crews on Netflix instant right now. You can check out and see some behind the scenes and interviews with the the voice actors from the film. So that was pretty cool. I checked that out last night. What, what's funny is if you go on, on Netflix, the the people that don't read, obviously, and are like, I give it one story like, what, what the heck, Netflix? Me and my family, we got, we're getting ready for family movie night. We made a popcorn, and we go to watch this, and it's not even the movie. But if, well, if it's it, just the trailer. Well, it's not. It's not the trailer. It's the clear. The thing says. Very clearly, it says behind the scenes, the oh, crudes. Yeah. It says that it's 13 minutes long. So if you read that, you know that it's not the film that's playing in theaters. But so everybody read before you you just assume things. Uh, yeah. So definitely go check out the crudes that's playing now. the The next thing is the Hobbit: An Unexpected Journey, Peter Jackson's first film now in the Hobbit trilogy, came out this past week on Blu-ray. The theatrical version, I guess, they're going to be releasing an extended version of the first film later this year, closer to Christmas, kind of like they did with the Lord of the Rings films, where they would release the theatrical in the spring and the extended in the fall. Although I kind of assumed with The Hobbit, with it being split into three movies, that was the extended version of The Hobbit. (laughs) All right, so this is an animation podcast. Why are you choosing to review The Hobbit now? Thanks for asking that question, Matt. We've, we've talked about visual effects before on the show, and I figure it only makes sense to talk about visual effects, heavy films like The Hobbit, and later this summer we'll be talking more about films 
like that too, like Iron Man and and Pacific Rim and things like that. And yeah, I mean, we we talked to Hal Hickel. He works at Industrial Light and Magic. That's visual effects right there. So, I mean, I, I figure it's only right to talk about that. The character of Gollum himself is completely animated with a lot of a lot of help from motion motion capture work from Andy Serkis. Yeah. It was now kind of pretty much refined motion capture. <laughs> From all the work yeah, he's I done saw, like that. I saw, what was it in that movie as well, the White Orc? I saw a making of somewhere of like that uh, CG creature, and it was amazing to yeah. see how that was put together. So Now, you said the last time we talked that you you saw this in theaters. and Did you get to see it in 3D? Did you see it in high frame rate, or did you just see the regular 2D okay. regular frame rate? So there's... High frame rate, which is the 48 frames per second, correct? Yeah. And then there's the 3D, and then there's the regular 2D, um, you know, experience. Yeah, and then there was, and then there was 3D, high frame rate IMAX, so you could have the ultimate, yeah. ultimate. So I'll tell you what, I, I only saw it in the regular, just 2D. 24 well, frames per second. 24 frames per second, and I did not, uh, it did not disappoint me, and yeah. I've heard from other people that I know that have seen the high frame rate that it actually looked weird. Like it, yeah. it's supposed to look like real life, but some people told me like the costumes kind of looked cheap in some parts. That That's just feedback that I've gotten. Yeah. When I saw it in theaters, I saw it in the, the high frame rate 3d mm-hmm. and I don't know if it's a, it's a matter of getting used to it because Peter Jackson has said that him after how much of high frame rate 3d he's watched now it's weird for him to watch regular 24 frames per second films because he's been so used to watching it like that so i don't know maybe it's just that but but when i did see it in theaters it seemed like a lot of times that maybe it was like in fast forward yeah yeah it'll give you that type of effect from you know watching um 24 and i don't know if that's just maybe because we're so used to seeing it in the 24 frames per second that's Mm. what, what film is supposed to look like to us for our eyes but when I watched it on the Blu-ray, I don't have, like, a high frame rate TV, so it's only in that. Yeah. And I'm not sure if, like, if you do have a high frame rate TV, if it'll be like that, because I'm, I'm not sure if there's an option. I didn't see an option on here to watch it in a different frame rate than the 24 frames per second. Yeah. Well, I think, yeah, it might be in your uh, TV settings, yeah. but here's another argument that I've heard of, and that's, you know film versus uh digital, digital yeah and, and, and a, a good film for that is that side-by-side documentary which is pretty good yeah and i i i recently read an argument where a guy was claiming that um because film shows slides um you actually see black in between each of the frames yeah. and you can actually register images they actually stay in your mind um you know more because you they actually go from the slide to black to the slide to black for, you know, in between. So uh, he was claiming that you actually, uh, you know, remember more about a film movie than you do a digital movie. And that's yeah. just interesting. Yeah. there's, And that, that's always going to be someone's opinion with what they like more digital or the film shot. Yeah. Uh, so. yeah but with, with this Blu-ray, it's it was interesting for me since – Watching at home, it was in the, the the regular frame right now. It wasn't in 3D because uh, I just got the 2D regular version of this. Uh, and it has the 10 production videos that they released. Well, 
If you, if you follow Peter Jackson's uh, YouTube channel, they've been releasing these steadily with the film, and they'll be doing that again with the sequel, Desolation of Smog, which I guess today they had some footage that they put online if you bought this Blu-ray. So if you bought it, I hope you checked that out. It'll I think it'll be online again in the next few days. You can watch the entire thing. It's like an hour and a half. But So if you already saw those, there's really nothing added on this besides that, and there's some trailers for like the Lego Lord of the Rings video game. Uh, trailers for the film itself. Yeah. So, pretty much, if if you're like a diehard Hobbit fan and you have to have every version of this, I'd say I guess <laughs> buy this now. Otherwise, wait for that extended version that's going to be coming out closer to Christmas. And I'm pretty sure, the same way that they did with the Lord of the Rings trilogy, that there'll be an extended version by itself, and there'll also be like a gift set that comes with some pretty awesome things. Because yeah. each gift set that came out for Lord of the Rings, I, I bought each one of those. So. <laughs> I might have to just splurge and do that with Unexpected Journey Extended Edition. But yeah, I mean, if you're a big Lord of the Rings fan, you should love this film. I I enjoyed it. I like Martin Freeman in it as Bilbo. He's pretty awesome. Oh, yeah. And I'll tell you what, I have, I have an ongoing experiment right now with the Lord of the Rings series. And that is that my girlfriend has never seen a Lord of the Rings series. And I'm actually starting her at the very beginning oh, and having her watch completely through from The Hobbit to The Lord of the Rings. It'll be so, interesting. It'll be interesting to see what her opinion is from watching from the prequel forward than everyone else that yeah. has already seen you know, The Lord of the Rings and then going back to the prequel. So she's going to have to wait two more years to even watch Fellowship of the Ring. Yeah, so it's an experiment that I have ongoing right now. And that, then the opening scene in The Hobbit will have a whole new meaning to her too once she sees Fellowship of the Ring. She'll be able to put it in context. Yep. So it'll be, we might want to interview her on the, <laughs> after the experiment is over. It'll be a couple of years from now. But I actually, we'll yeah, I actually wonder if Peter Jackson will pour, pull, ah, pull a George Lucas. And there's a scene in the Fellowship of the Ring where it shows Bilbo finding the ring, and Gollum getting all upset. I wonder if he'll have reshot that scene with Martin Freeman in it because in the Fellowship, it's it's obviously Ian Holm playing Bilbo as he played the older version of Bilbo in that too. So, <laughs> yeah. so I, I guess right, because right now that kind of continuity wise seems strange, I guess, but yeah, so definitely check out the Hobbit. If you have not seen it yet, it is definitely worth picking up. If you do not want to buy it, at least definitely go rent it. Cause it's, it's worth watching. Yes. And after going completely off topic, here's our news in a few seconds. Yeah. Dreams I've come to understand. It's the honesty of love that keeps us close, and that's what matters most. Even when we're worlds away, it doesn't seem so far. A connection. for this week the first bit is recently we got word more disney animated features are going to come out on blu-ray on june 11th so get excited for that because it's going to be the emperor's new groove and its sequel kronk's new groove atlantis the lost empire and its sequel <laughs> atlantis milo's return and lilo and stitch and its sequel lilo and stitch 2 stitch's got a glitch <laughs> No comment. <laughs> uh, yeah, with with Lilo and Stitch, I'm almost surprised they didn't try to put all four Lilo and Stitch 
animated films that came out because there's Lilo and Stitch, Lilo and Stitch 2, Stitch has got a glitch. The movie Stitch, just, just Stitch, and then there's Leroy and Stitch. So, oh, so maybe maybe we'll get Stitch and Leroy and Stitch later this year because those more or less were like a pilot for the Leo and Stitch animated series and a series finale for the Leo and Stitch animated series respectively. So I'm excited for these. It, it kind of, some people might not like that you get what what Stanford, when he wrote this on the site, uh, called Cheap Quills from Disney's era of making sequels to every single film they ever made. <laughs> Almost. But... <laughs> I'm just excited to get some of these on, on Blu-ray. Like right now, you can watch Atlantis in HD on Netflix Instant, but I'll be glad to have have it on Blu-ray. Love myself some Michael J. Fox, uh, Emperor's New Groove. I finally, this was another one that I missed, and I finally watched last year. So I'm I'm glad I watched that. And I really liked that as well. And then everybody loves Lilo and Stitch. That's one of, that's one of the best from the early 2000s that they put out. So I'm definitely looking forward to these, and I will be picking them up. Uh, the next one is is pretty exciting. My son definitely wants me to, to help him do this, which I'm going to have to because it's only open to kids 16 years and older. Uh, basically, you can build... If you have like a unique Lego thing, creation that you made, you can send it and upload a video to YouTube to the people that are making the, the Lego animated film, and it'll possibly show up in the film. So, so I mean that that's pretty cool if if you if you're a big Lego person and you make your own like custom Lego buildings or vehicles or just like minifigures, uh, it's a it's a cool opportunity to get something that you created and have it put in the film and, and that way they're kind of getting some of their their background at, uh, I don't know like sculptures done for them without <laughs> them having to figure out to do it themselves. What, what do you think about that, Matt? I think it's pretty cool. I actually just took a trip down to uh, New York City last weekend, and we went to um, uh, like the one of the Lego stores down there, and just to see like the Lego sculptures. People could do ridiculous things with Legos. I mean, I saw like a full size Hulk, like the Hulk, oh, done in Legos. And you know, down in it's it's like the Toys R Us on Times Square, and they have all these huge, just you know. E- just seeing them in photos is nothing to actually going there and seeing them in real life and like looking at them and go, holy cow, it must have took so long to make that. So I have a lot of respect for people yeah. who are creative with Legos and they can do this type of thing. Yeah, there's pictures like, I mean, if you've seen pictures before of Pixar, you've seen that they have those life-size Lego creations of yeah. Buzz and Woody like as you come in. And and then I remember in one of, one of those videos that I recommended at, uh, John Lasseter actually has like a head sculpt of himself done on Lego too, so that's pretty <laughs> yeah, cool. Yeah, I've seen that. That's cool. Yeah. So yeah, Lego movie. Uh, the the next thing is a Dorothy of Oz has now been renamed. So now it's, it will be called Legends of Oz: Dorothy's Return, and and it's basically going. I know they're striving to kind of do like a franchise with this, so these will be heavily based on L. Frank Baum's book, more so than the 1939 film The Wizard of Oz or the more recently released Oz the Great and Powerful. Uh, it stars Leia Michelle, so if you guys watch Glee, Rachel Berry is doing the voice of Dorothy in this. Uh, the line is voiced by Jim Belushi. Scarecrow is Don... Don... Dan Aykroyd. I don't know what I was saying. Don Aykroyd. 
Dan Aykroyd is now the Godfather. Uh, Tin Man is voiced by Kelsey Grammer. So, oh. and the voice cast also includes Patrick Stewart, Martin Short, and Bernadette Peters as Glinda the Good. Uh, and Canadian pop star Brian Adams is also contributing to the soundtrack. So, probably Brian <laughs> Adams fans. There you go. Uh, are you looking forward to this at all? I'm, the animation styling for it looks pretty cool. Yeah, as soon as you you know mentioned all the voice actors that are going to be in it, I'm I'm pretty excited to check this out. And I definitely, kind of, uh, I'm I'm pretty appreciative of like this this Oz kind of resurgence that's coming back, and all all of this Wizard of Oz stuff yeah. we're getting now. So it's, it's pretty cool, and um, definitely be checking this out. It's been it's actually, and it was going to be coming out this year, but now it's been pushed back to early 2014. So. We'll have to check that out next year when that comes out. Uh, the next thing is Angry Birds Tunes, now showing on a screen near you. So if you have the Angry Birds app, you can actually watch some of these Angry Birds animated uh, cartoons that they're, they started doing. There's going to be 52 episodes released by Rovio Entertainment. And... Rovio said, we long wanted to tell our fans the story of the Angry Birds and the Bad Piggies to introduce their personalities and their world in detail. Uh, we're delighted to introduce all this through our new channel with easy and instant access to the stories in the palm of your hand. With over 1.7 billion downloads, we can reach a far wider and more engaged global audience than traditional distribution would allow. Launching the channel and partnering up with some of the best video on demand providers and TV networks is an important milestone for us on our journey towards becoming a fully fledged entertainment powerhouse. So I guess depending on how well these do and like how many people they find out watching them, maybe, maybe they'll get production on that film that they started doing out faster possibly. Yeah, maybe. I don't know, but uh, each of these stories I'm talking about too, if you want to see more in depth about the stories, uh, just click on these links once you check them out on our site and you can, get a little bit more info on all of these too uh the next one i, I thought was pretty cool is closer to our neck of the woods where where i used to live and now closer to where you live matt uh film composer thomas newman who did he did the music for wally uh and finding nemo was recently in syracuse new york yeah yeah so, so yeah syracuse uh was at lemoyne college and uh syracuse university too yeah, uh, my mom graduated from Lemoyne. Awesome, and I'm not. He was there basically uh, talking about, I, I guess, giving a speech and talking about his history and style of music. And he kind of let it slip that he's going to be doing the score for Bob Peterson's *The Good Dinosaur* for Pixar that's coming out on May 30th next year. So I'm pretty excited about that. I, I liked the music a lot for both Nemo and Wally. So I'm sure it'll have that same kind of his music for those had this kind of, you know, like really expressive, almost a good depressing sound to them, <laughs> if if that makes sense. There's just a lot of emotion. Yeah, and I really liked that about those two things. So I'm glad that we'll be getting that with the Good Dinosaur one that comes out next year, too. What do you think about that? Yeah, I'm excited. I can't wait um, to see what uh, he has in store for us. So can't wait for that to come out on May 30th, 2014. The next bit of news is DreamWorks and Nickelodeon have, are bringing us Monsters vs. Aliens, the animated TV series. What do you think about this, Matt? I think it would be pretty cool. I liked um, 
when they came out with like the Halloween um, like little shorts. And I thought those were really cool. So I can't wait. I love Bob. I can't wait to see uh, them bring back, uh, you know, this for a TV series. Yeah. What's, what's interesting is I wonder, I guess, somewhat why it took so long from the do an animated series for this since the film came out in 2009. So, but the synopsis for the series is after the previous escapade, escapades, uh, so like their Halloween special and then the Night of the Living Carrots, which was the sequel to the Halloween special, uh, everything is quiet for Team Monster in Area 50-something. That is until Coverton, a telepathic alien, imprisons the U.S. president, but was actually making a peaceful deal. What the monsters, General Monger, and the president don't know is that Coverton is working for an evil alien who wants to destroy the monsters and take over Earth. Uh, and IGN posted a, a trailer to this. Did you, did you get a chance to watch that trailer at all, Matt? I haven't gotten a chance to see it yet. Uh, the, the thing that bothered me about the trailer was that Bob was super annoying. <laughs> and and I didn't think he was annoying in the film or or the shorts that they did either. But the way that I don't maybe it's just the way they edited that that ad and they, they think that kids really wanted it that way was the way that they had him in that and it was, I don't know he was just really annoying in the ad. But besides that, uh, Susan, aka Genormica, is the same height as Bob and Doctor Cockroach and Missing Link. So uh, maybe there's a thing where she can control when she gets giant now. Yeah. I don't I don't know what's going on there uh as can be predicted it's not the same voice cast as the film uh but some of the actors on this are equally in demand for live action films just uh, like uh in point chris o'dowd who has been in a lot of judd apatow's films he was on the, the it crowd uh he was doing the voice for dr Cotro. Dr. Cockroach <laughs> taking over for uh, Hugh Laurie. Uh, Diedrich Bader is doing the voice of the mi missing link, taking over for Will Arnett. Uh, Ricky Lindholm is taking over for Reese Witherspoon for Genomerica. And Eric Edelstein is taking over for Seth Rogen as Bob. Uh, so, And then Julian Jacobs, if you guys watch Community, she's doing a character named Stabby. Uh, and then there's you know voice act voice actor alums Kevin Michael Richardson doing General Warren Monger and Jeff Bennett as Coverton. Uh, so I, I mean I'm interested to see what this is. It premiered last night after the, the uh, Nickelodeon Kids Choice Awards. So I mean it should be available on iTunes now to check out. I'll check out one episode to see if I like it. If I don't like it, I won't watch it anymore that's what I said. <laughs> but, there you go. but yeah so we're interested to see what what you guys have to say about it too and what you think about a, a new dreamworks nickelodeon partnership with uh yet another animated television series let us know on our blog yeah or on twitter or email or wherever whichever way you want to contact us uh, the next thing that I'm pretty excited about because I, I enjoyed the first Tintin film is that Spielberg has hinted that the sequel could be hitting in 2015 around Christmas time. He said, don't hold me to it, but we're hoping the film will come out around Christmas time 2015. We know which books we're making, and we can't share that now, but we're combining two books, which were always intended to be combined by author and Tintin creator Herge 
to begin with. Uh, so I'm pretty excited for that. Peter Jackson's going to be directing this time much, and then Spielberg will be producing the the opposite of what they did last time for the first film. So I'm excited for this. I really enjoy the first one. How about you, Matt? I can't wait to see the first one, actually. Um, I've been what? waiting to see that. Yeah. So I guess I have some time now that uh, this new one isn't coming out till 2015. Um, but I'll be sure to watch it. I just I don't know how that one slipped onto my radar. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, so... That's pretty exciting. Then the next thing, kind of cool marketing for Despicable Me too, uh, that Despicable Limp. <laughs> uh, John Huber just posted a thing on our site about this. It's pretty cool marketing for for the film. It started yesterday. It's going to be traveling about twenty thousand miles and it's scheduled to hit most of the major cities from coast to coast. So I'm hoping it comes somewhere, somewhere, somewhere. Somewhere, film de chauffeur. Sorry. So, uh, so I'm hoping it'll show up somewhere around the Phoenix area. I'll be able to see a huge minion flying around in the sky. I'll tell you what, it looks like a minion uh, cone head. <laughs> yeah, j- just because of the way the the thing's shaped. Yeah. Uh, it it's it's 150 feet long. And I'm pretty excited to, to you can follow it on despicablebillimp.com. Uh, follow the hashtag for it on Instagram and Flickr, Despicablimp. And there's actually a contest so that if you take pictures of it and you hashtag it with that, you have a chance to actually win a trip to the red carpet premiere of the sequel just by doing that. So that's pretty cool. Uh, and definitely, so definitely check that out. You can check out the videos on our site as well, where it shows a feature about it, and also the time lapse of it getting blown up and flying to the sky. I remember back a few years in 2010, I got to see the I saw the Conan blimp flying around when nice. he started on TBS. So that, that was pretty cool. Uh, the next few things are basically a few cha- Disney channels and the hubs announced the hubs. The Hub announced their the programming for this year and next year. Uh, so basically, Disney has their Phineas and Ferb Mission Marvel thing that we first talked about with Drake Bell last year when we interviewed him, and he kind of let that slip that he was going to be doing a voice for Spider-Man in this. So we've been looking forward to that since then. Uh, so yeah, d- definitely check that out. You can see a little trailer for that on our site as well. Uh, there's a new animated series called Wander Over Yonder, which looks pretty interesting. Uh, Gravity Falls is coming back for Disney Channel. There's a new series called Star and the Forces of Evil, which is kind of in that same vein as Gravity Falls. Disney XD also has two new Marvel animated series coming out. There's Avengers Assemble, which is taking over for the the dearly departed Marvel, uh, the Avengers Earth's Mightiest Heroes, which I thought was an, a great animated series, which you can still f- actually find on Netflix Instant right now. It's an HD on there, so check that out. It's pretty awesome. As well as the ne- other Marvel show is going to be Marvel's Hulk and the Agents of Smash. So you get double the Hulkness for all your awesomeness mm-hmm. there. And then there's some Disney Junior shows coming out for the preschool crowd. There's Henry Hugglemonster. And then there's Sheriff Callie's Wild West, which 
uh, Mandy Moore is actually doing the voice of Sheriff Kelly on that. She was entangled, and she's also recently did a voice on Tron Uprising, too. Uh, and the last bit is the 7D, which, when we again, when we talked to Bill Farmer last year, he told us he would be doing a voice on that series as well. So we're pretty excited. Exclusive. Yeah. So we're pretty excited for 7D, even if it is for preschoolers. We're going to watch that because we like ourselves some Bill Farmer. Uh, and then the Hub also announced their their new television series for this year and next year, and specials. They're doing a new animated series for Sabrina: Secrets of a Teenage Witch. Uh, I know Matt and I remember the live action Melissa Joan Hart series from when we were younger, when that was on TGIF. Uh, it's going to be starring the voice of Ashley Tisdale, who has done plenty of work for Disney, and she also does the voice of Candace on Phineas and Ferb. Uh, but I don't know if I'll watch this at all, but I remember there was an, another Sabrina animated series a few years ago as well. Uh, the returning shows to the hub are Transformers, Rescue Bots, which a good friend, our good friend, man, man, I've got some slurring going on today. I don't know why. Uh, Transformers Rescue Bots is coming back with our good friend. Jason Marsden's voice will be in that. Uh, My Little Pony for all you bronies out there uh, is coming back. <laughs> I'm not a brony. I've seen a few episodes of that, and I, uh, the animation is beautiful on that show. But I can, I don't really see the appeal for men our age, Matt, to be watching that. Well, you know, Mark, you need to have another kid, and you need to have a girl now, so you can start watching all these uh, shows. <laughs> that the demographic is younger girls. So. Well, since I already have, I already have a kid. You need to have a kid. You have, you have, you have the girl, and, and then you let me know. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, there's Littlest Pet Shop, Pound Puppies, and Kajudo Rise of the Duel Masters. Those are all coming back as well, and they're animated. And also, they're doing a Transformers Prime Beast Hunters, Predacons Rising, original movie for the uh, the channel, which will kind of be a series finale for Transformers Prime. If you've been following this along, it's pretty actually a pretty good animated series. You can watch the first two seasons on Netflix instant right now if you have that so definitely check that out and the last bit is stanley's mighty seven which is an original series produced by stanley's power entertainment which is features an animated version of stanley himself helping a group of aliens become superheroes so that's pretty cool and if you have the hub they actually regularly regularly show reruns of warner brothers uh older series like animaniacs and you know tiny tunes and other awesome shows like that and Freakazoid and just everything awesome. Uh, the last bit of news today that we're going to touch on, which is kind of sad news, possibly also has a silver lining, is that with Disney now acquiring Lucasfilm, the animated series Star Wars The Clone Wars will be ending. I was originally thought that it would go from Cartoon Network, where it was originally on, to now Disney XD or the Disney Channel. And they would have season six there. Re recently just wrapped up season five. Uh, Dave Filoni, who is the major executive producer and create and kind of creative head for the show, re released a video on StarWars.com showing some footage for stuff they'd already completed for a season six. Uh, so right now it's not really sure what that season six will be, if it'll be a few you know, straight to Blu-ray and DVD released films with those episodes 
put together to make those films to tie up these loose ends that were kind of left hanging so that way it can segue right easier into where it would have been timeline wise with episode three but going from that they're also developing a new animated series in a yet undetermined time time uh, so it could be in between episode six and episode seven which i'm assuming is the more likely thing because they're trying to focus more on that with you know episode seven coming out in a few years or the other thing that would be cool is if they did it i'm going to show my star wars geek here with maybe like a knights of the old republic thing where it's like thousands and thousands of years before the prequels started and there's plenty of jedis and sith running all around and so it'll be interesting to see what happens there and seth green's show that was also working on star wars detours has now been delayed for the foreseeable future with with this as well so if you want to check out that trailer we also have that right in the story on it on our slate that i actually wrote myself so go on and check that out guys so yeah that is our news for the week if you have any comments you want to tell us what you thought about some of this news that we talked about send us email twitter whatever you want to do get in touch with us let us know leave comments on the site so we'll be back in a few seconds talking about the new trailers that came out this week Dress in your Friday best and ready to impress Oh, I like the show And can I say that you're the prettiest girl that I know Or will ever know So give me your hand I got a record on the table and I think it's gonna gonna make you wanna let go An opportunity to get a little wild, baby, can I get a smile, smile, damn, I hope so Now we're turning up the heat to the shovel to repeat, to repeat, to repeat, to repeat New trailers. Uh, this week we're going to be talking about Turbo and Despicable Me. The two, they both released new trailers for their films that actually finally give us, you know, some really good hard information about what the main story of these movies are going to be about. The first one is Turbo, and now I'm actually really, really excited for Turbo after <laughs> after seeing this. Uh, originally, I watched the the domestic trailer too which is i know the one that i sent to matt and he watched i don't think he's watched the international one that i just found recently and watched but they, they more or less have this the same footage in them so matt i'm gonna ask you first what did you think about uh, the trailer and are you more excited for the film now after seeing that yeah i mean i had no idea how like the story was gonna pan itself out for this snail becoming like a race car driver and i really like the concept behind it like I don't. I don't want to give too much away, but it it really changed my mind about. It. I know we said bad, bad things in the past about this when we just saw like the artwork come out and we really didn't know much about the storyline. But after watching this trailer, I, I'm really excited to see this. Definitely, and and blah, 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 blah. sorry, hold on. <clears throat> Yeah, I, I I definitely agree with that. After watching that, and then now I watch the international one, uh, it's giving giving all that story to me now. Uh, I'm not too sure about the human character that's going to be in it, but I like like the kind of uh, the the transformation and how they show like how he's going to become fast, and I like the animation with that and how, like how he glows a little bit and things like that and. <laughs> The, the gags that they'll be doing with that. 
everything. I'm not too sure about some of the side characters though. Still, uh, like Snoop, like Snoop Dogg's character in that in the trailer, right? Uh, what do you think about Snoop Dogg's character? <laughs> it's just Snoop Dogg is a snail essentially. Yeah, pretty much. So. Yeah, so I mean, I'm de- I'm definitely more excited for this now. I I and what from what you're saying, I see that you are too. So yeah, uh, if you saw the cruise this week too, it was it was in front of the cruise. So let us know what that was like seeing it on the big screen because it was not in front of my screening of the cruise. And I'm glad to see yet again Ryan Reynolds doing another voice for DreamWorks this year because he was pretty funny in in the cruise. The the next one. Uh, Despicable Me 2, we finally see what the story is going to be for this after the <laughs> yeah. the first two teasers heavily centric on the minions. We see Gru in this trailer finally. Uh, he's tucking in the, the little girls from the first film. And you kind of get a sense that, like, you know, he's settled into, like, this fatherly role. And then he it looks like he's basically brought back to kind of try to help them take down this villain since he used to be one and all his expertise from that and what he can do. Yeah. It looks pretty red. I, you know, we didn't think that it was going to be based around uh crew anymore because of, uh, you know, all the trailers we've seen previously. So seeing this one really just like turbo, it just kind of opened our eyes to the plot and uh, really kind of laid out, you know, the storyline and it really got me excited to go out and see this. Cause it just, it seems, you know, original to me the storyline and um it, yeah it looks really cool yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about it. Uh, you get a glimpse of Kristen wig uh, as the the woman that comes and picks grew up in the film uh steve coogan it sounds like he's i thought he was going to be doing the voice of the villain but i i think actually that's El, i think el pacino is gonna be doing the voice of the villain in this but steve coogan is the <laughs> the uh the head of i don't remember do you remember what it was? You just you just you just watched the trailer, so you probably remember what the name of the agency was. The, oh jeez. Well, anyways, oh, yeah. anyway, he's he's the head of that the organization that Gru is brought to, and there's there's some more awesome gags with the the minions in the trailer, and yeah, I like that. They're gonna bring back a lot of the minion gags, so that'll be cool. Yeah, definitely two trailers that are worth checking out. They're right on our site, and there's also a new poster for both. Turbo and Despicable Me 2. The one for Despicable Me 2 is, again, basically it's a, a teaser poster that's very minion-heavy. Uh, there's a naked minion uh, wipe, uh, basically <laughs> toweling off in, in like a minion uh, locker room. So definitely check all those out. And uh, those are our trailers for the week. We'll be back in a few seconds with our recommendations. Recommendations this week. Uh, my first, my, well, I only have one recommendation this week. I'm not being greedy anymore. <laughs> the, 
Uh, first one is the first of many shorts that they're going to be releasing, focusing on Mickey again. It's called Croissant de Triomphe. It's it's a really cool kind of contemporary take on Mickey, and this this really kind of cool visual style. Uh, it's all set in Paris, and it's about Mickey trying to get these croissants to Minnie, who's running out of them at her her restaurant. I, I really liked it. There's a, you hear the music there in the background. Uh, <laughs> there there's a, a cameo or two in it from some other Disney characters that you may recognize. And I, I really liked it. I'm looking forward to more of these coming out. What about you, Matt? Yeah, I really like it. It's it's bringing me back to an older style of, you know, the 2D animation. It's really, you know, over the top, you know, squash and stretch animation, which is really cool. And it's just, it, it really just brings me back to the old Mickey cartoons. And I can't wait to see more of this. Definitely. Uh, what, what did you have to recommend to us this week, Mac? Um, my recommendation is another short off of Vimeo, and it's called A Story About Robots. And this film, I'm, I'm not sure where it's made. <laughs> um, it's from uh, Paramotion Films, and it's, it's like a, a minute and a half. Uh, you know, there's no dialogue. It's about this, like, wind-up toy robot there's a lot of like emotion and like the music drives the piece and it it gets pretty creepy in the end there but um it, it's it's cool it's the imagery is really cool the backgrounds were shot with a cannon um and then uh all the camera movements and uh animation were made in stop motion so and then cool. the yeah, and then the actual robot itself was, you know, 3D and then comped with After Effects. So it's it's a really cool just, you know, minute and 30 seconds. If you're at work or something, check it out. You know, minute and 30 seconds, really cool, awesome, you know, emotional, like, little short there. Yeah. What would you think? I enjoyed it. I'd actually watched it before you recommended it to me because was, I was bored the other night. I was just flipping through Vimeo and just watching all the animation stuff on there because, like we've said yeah. before, there's a bunch of great animated things on there and i enjoyed it i was trying to figure out if like if it was all uh live action or if some of it was animated yeah. so it was after you recommended it on this and i was able to read some of that stuff it was cool to see the mixture of different animation styles they put together to do it so yeah, I really like as well the uh, aspect ratio. I like when film, like little short films, they don't use a traditional widescreen 16 by 9 and they go for an even wider, you know, almost panoramic uh, look. And you can actually compose your shots in a different way with a wider screen like that. So that, I really like this. Definitely. Yeah, so those are recommendations for the week when you have... Cal on in a few seconds. We'll ask him his recommendation at the end of his interview, too. So we'll be back in our few seconds with our interview with Cal Brunker, the director of Rainmaker Entertainment's Escape from Planet Earth. See you in a few seconds, guys.
All right, guys, here's our main topic for the day. Uh, we're going to be interviewing Rainmaker Entertainment's Cal Brunker, who directed Escape from Planet Earth that just came out this past February. So, Cal, I guess in introduce yourself and kind of give us a little bit of your background. Uh, sure. Uh, my name's Cal. I directed and uh, co-wrote Escape from Planet Earth. Uh, before that, I spent many years working as a story artist on... Uh, Horton Hears a Who and Despicable Me and um, worked on Ice Age 4 and also uh, s between working full-time as a story artist and uh, directing my first feature, I spent a couple years directing uh, commercials and some short films and stuff um, while also juggling uh, story work. So yeah, that's, that's my background. I went to Sheridan College for classical hand-drawn animation and uh, um, yeah, I've just finished uh, finished my first movie, so it's been a pretty pretty intense and fantastic couple of years. Awesome. Kind of going off that, I guess what what originally brought you to and like interested you into the world of animation itself? Well, I grew up in a I grew up in a small town uh, outside of Toronto, not that small, but small enough that I didn't I wasn't really exposed to the filmmaking world at all as a, a town called Kitchener and we had a just a kind of mediocre art program at our high school and and uh and I love to draw and I love movies and I didn't want to kind of work at a regular desk job and uh and I and I wasn't really aware that people actually got a chance to make films until very close to to the end of my uh my time in high school and when I found out about this program at Sheridan um, I thought, wow, that's great. People draw for a living. That's that's amazing. I didn't think that actually happened. So I applied and and didn't get in, which is um, the case a lot of the time with uh, with Sheridan. They had a, just a ton of applications every year for a limited number of spots, and uh, so I thought, okay, it's not meant to be, and and went uh, ended up taking engineering of all things, and I've sat in engineering classes drawing all the time thinking this is ridiculous i i really want to be doing something else so i applied again and i didn't get in again and uh at that point i said okay i'm gonna i think my approach is is wrong and i called the school and i said okay that's n no beef you guys didn't let me in for some reason that's fine but what's the approach like how do i how do i get to the to the level and they said one of two things they had an internal program that um where I think it was called Art Fundamentals, where you could go and kind of get your drawing chops up. But they said if you really want to get better uh, and strictly for animation, there's a, a drawing school in Toronto. And so I went to that school for a year. And when I got proper drawing instruction, I just I realized that I couldn't have even competed be before that with the people that were that went to art high schools. I mean, they were actually taught how to draw. They weren't just given you know, a cow skull and said, you know, take three months and shade this thing and try and make it look like a cow skull. They were take, taken to life drawing and drawing, you know, perspective classes and all of this stuff. So I did that for one year in Toronto and then got in, had a great time at, uh, at Sheridan. I mean, obviously I can go into that a bit more. It wasn't, wasn't without its, without its drama, but I, I had a, a good time there and, and graduated, um, I got the Teletoon kind of most promising graduate award at the end. So it was a awesome. struggle to get in, but once once I was in, it went really well. Very cool. 
Awesome. Yeah, that was really cool. It's funny. I actually was an engineer before I started in animation as well. So a little common ground there. <laughs> well, I, you know, I think it's, I think it's the same kind of stuff that mm -hmm. you've got inside you. That's kind of trying to find a way to get out is you're saying, I want to, I want to solve problems. I want to create things. I want to, and so you're trying to look for avenues to earn a living and get that part of you out at the same time. And so it sounds weird when you look back, you're like, those are such separate things. But when you're, when you're young and in high school and you draw very mediocrely, it's uh, it's difficult to imagine that somebody's going to pay you for that at some point. So yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, you go like I I like to do 3D in high school, so I thought, hey, you know, I'll do CAD, and then it's like people were telling me, you know, you have to draw this pipe, you know, and then it's like, well, I want to do something. I want to create something for myself. So, yeah, and that's how I transition to like the world of animation. I see it's. You're, it's like the same for you too. So, yeah, absolutely. Cool. What was the position of a storyboard artist like? What was your first job as a storyboard artist like? Like, how did you feel when you got there, and like, what did you, well, what did you expect? Um, I'll I'll tell you. I got I got there through an interesting kind of path, <laughs> and if anybody listening to this is uh, is just kind of trying to break into the world of animation it's a reasonably helpful story so I'll throw it in and they can ignore it if they don't <laughs> like it but um what happened after I after I left school um you're in that point in time where you're not really quite good enough to have a to compete in the professional world but you've got some skills mm -hmm. and I was doing some design work for a, a television show and uh there was a guy in in Toronto uh, named Ricardo Curtis who'd been a board artist and animator at Pixar and a couple other places, and he'd uh, started his own studio and was making a short film. and And I uh, I knew that I wanted to get better. That was my primary goal, and so I offered to work on his short film, just volunteer on it, and learn from him. And uh, so I did that and and worked really hard and was a kind of key part of. Uh, him getting getting that done, and then as his studio that he was starting, uh, it was a storyboard studio, started to take off, um, just doing some television storyboard work, he brought me into that. And then as I did that for uh, maybe a year or so there, and then he was brought on as head of story on Horton Hears a Who, and he uh, said to Blue Sky, he said, hey, if you want to see the work from any of my guys back in Toronto, I'm happy to have them pitch to you. So I uh, got a chance to pitch and they selected me to go down and, and be part of the team. So that was my, my way in. And I only mention this story because it's frequently, it, it's not an unusual story to kind of be volunteering or working on a film, uh, like a, a personal project of somebody that can help open doors for you in the future. So that, that, uh, that was a key for me to kind of just break through that first threshold. But once I was uh, in at Blue Sky, uh, working on Horton, I I was you know working uh, with a great team, really talented people around, and um, and great great directors. Steve Martino and Jimmy Hayward were directing the film, and the process there is they you know they'll either if it's very early on in the movie and they don't have a finished script yet, they might just pitch you the concept of the scene. Um, or if the script is done, they will give you pages and they'll say, hey, here's how it fits into the whole uh, film. Here's why the scene is here. And, you know, go 
pitch me a take on it. And that was the first time that I really realized that being a story artist isn't about camera angles and shots and composition. It's kind of about that stuff, but really it's about ideas. If you want to be a, 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 a valuable story artist, you have to do better than what they hand you than just putting pretty shots of, of what they've handed you. So I found my process was always to take the script and rewrite the ideas just in a text file. Not that I was rewriting the script at all, but here is what the scene is about. Here is what the characters need to do. And then brainstorm on, pa on paper with words. Here are a bunch of different ways that I could visually, you know, if this is about, um, uh, you know, a guy trying to break into a, into a bank at night by himself. What are a bunch of ways that I could show he's nervous? Well, <laughs> he drops his tools. He's fumbling. You know, there's you make a whole list of all the things this guy could be doing. And before pencil ever hit paper to start drawing boards. And that's, uh, I, I really think that's the key to being a good story artist. Now, some people work directly into drawings and they have a different process. But it really is about the ideas that you're bringing to the table, not, not, just, the, not just the shots. Now, composition and framing and all that stuff is important. But um, that's, that's very learnable. Uh, it's where you where you really bring value to the process is if a director can say, I need this moment between, you know, a father and son to have meaning and, and the script page is only working okay, see what you can come up with. And if you can surprise them and make the scene better than they thought it could be at the beginning, or that that ends up being, you know, the real secret of being a strong story artist is is uh coming up with a creative way to plus the script page, not just put it into board form. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, totally. That makes total sense. I mean, I like how, like, even when I'm at work, like I put like a lot of my ideas into the storyboards. And like you were saying, like that makes a good storyboard artist. I true. I believe that truly. Definitely. Uh, kind of going from that, you've, you've worked for like a few different studios on, on a bunch of really different films. What are, Kind of the differences of how each studios, each of those studios work, and like what's the like the same kind of running thing that goes through all of them. Sure, I well, I think the same running thing that goes through all of them is generally uh, try and find a new idea. Your job is you're you're a thinking person. You're not a it's not a technical job, and so that that would be the thing that runs true across all of them. When I'm approached still to do any story work with people it's always because in the past i've had good ideas not so much about drawing skill necessarily but the differences between some of the studios um i've done freelance and in-house for a couple different places uh illumination who does you know amazing work the despicable me's and and uh and lorax and and other stuff they uh primarily they work freelance and they have a lot of people that they work with uh, around the world and they're generally pretty experienced people that they've worked with before and you'll get a basically a call or a Skype from the, the director, he'll pitch you through the scene and then usually at the end of every week you'll turn in your stuff uh, and then there's a program that we use called CineSync where you're able to, uh, they can call up your storyboards on their end and you can pitch them through that stuff 
uh, by you can control when they're seeing what panel, which is a powerful part of pitching is obviously be be able to hold back information so that you can say, and then he jumps out and you <laughs> jump to that board and, you know, the guy's jumping out and they get the feeling of, of the movie. Um, at, at Blue Sky, uh, I was I was in-house and that's a fun, that's really a fun way to to do story because you end up, same kind of thing, you get a pitch from the directors, you get the pages and you, you know, every week usually everybody will pitch once but at blue sky at least on horton we pitched to the to the whole room with the rest of the story artists you know the producers and and the directors there and that there's something wonderful about that process because you can gauge how uh something is playing with the whole group um if something is not working there's crickets in the room and people are trying to (laughs) not make eye contact with you when you're done. And if it is working and everybody bursts out laughing, uh, you have a good chance of that at least making its way to editorial to see if it it's going to stay and work in the movie. And that can help, you know, sometimes if directing is a hard, hard job and if the directors are, are tired and under all the stresses that they're under, uh, having the whole room burst into laughter at something you did in your in your boards can help get an idea through that they may not have been in love with before, but they go, oh my gosh, this is, maybe maybe I'm not in the space that I can laugh at that, but clearly this is connecting with people, so let's give it a shot. So I like that process a lot, but, um, but you know, freelance has, has its uh, advantages too. Um, mostly that you can assemble all sorts of, you know, from a studio perspective, they can assemble talent from all over the world as opposed to, you know, just whoever's in New York or whatever for <laughs> Blue Sky. Cool. So would you say, like, as being a story artist, it is you're kind of directing as well, like, um, you know, when you're putting your ideas on there. So how, um, like, how was it from you going to a story artist to a director? Did someone like, like your storyboard and say, hey, you could be a good director? Is that how it kind of happened? I ended up directing a bunch on my own, and I think this is this is key to anybody who wants to make that jump. Some people can make it just by kind of either being such geniuses, but usually <laughs> it doesn't even happen that way. N- normally what happens is they're very talented and they've been at the studio for a long time and kind of risen up as far as they can, and the next natural step is to direct a short or to get in they give them yeah. a co-directing job on a feature or something that happens like that a lot. The alternative is, and what I did, um, I, I wanted to jump the queue a little bit. I wanted to, uh, move up faster than I would have by waiting in line at, at a studio. Cause there are lots of talented people there. There aren't, they don't make many movies. So the opportunities are relatively limited. What I did is, um, I, I ended up getting into, uh, I directed commercials while continuing to do freelance story work and I did some shorts and I did a little a little five minute um kind of pilot short for Disney, a little animated thing. And the woman who was running that shorts program at Disney uh years and years and years ago ended up being the uh person in charge of development at Rainmaker when they were looking for directors on this film. And I'd done good work for her years ago when she was at Disney. And that's how my name got thrown in the ring for this job the first time. So 
it's kind of a convoluted path to get there, but I think the key is to uh, to be making films on your own and directing things on your own because I think the skills of a storyboard artist certainly transfer, but directing is a whole bunch of other stuff other than being creative um, in terms of navigating this kind of political... Uh, a very high stakes world, right? Is e- oh, yeah. even yeah. <laughs> even on a on a movie like uh, Escape, you're talking about tens and tens of millions of dollars, which is you know it's like a it's like being the CEO of a company, and people get nervous. And you know, I jokingly say it's like playing Survivor for a couple of years. As you look at the number of directors that are replaced on movies, even at these great studios you know you look at pixar and it's not an uncommon thing to have a director change and be Uh let go over the course of production so um story skills definitely uh and storyboarding skills definitely a huge asset but it's also tons of kind of interpersonal skills and um also obviously knowledge in in as many of the departments as you can have so uh, animation is a is another strong suit of mine and i knew enough about lighting and comp to be able to speak the language really fluently with those guys as well. I'd done some comp work in commercials and stuff, so I was able to express what I was looking for more more clearly. Awesome. Yeah, that's that's pretty cool. I mean, the fact that you can communicate with all those different groups, I mean, that I think would make you just an awesome director to begin with because, I mean, I've seen directors that can't communicate with you know, the people actually making what you're doing and it's, it's a rough uh, road to go down. (laughs) I think, I think that's, that's the thing is it's, uh, it ends up being, it's possible. And some of those directors are really great, but Mm -hmm. it's, it can be, you know, um, escape was a very budgetarily limited film relative to our competition. I mean, very, very budgetarily limited. And, and the fact that we were able to pull off something, um, that looks like it did is because we just didn't waste. And I think when people can't express quite what they want and they have to see 10 different versions of everything, that's, that's a lot of money that doesn't end up on the screen in, in the end. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. And the movie did look really beautiful too. I thought the animation looked great. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. We worked really hard, uh, worked really hard And the crew. I mean, uh, the crew, was absolutely unbelievable. A lot of them, it was their first feature, um, theatrical feature, but people just absolutely threw themselves into this with unbelievable passion and kind of dedication to this project. And there were people who, uh, you know, you just couldn't tear away from their shots. And you're like, go home, you know, it's (laughs) Sunday at 11 o'clock at night, you need to leave. So um, but it was great. It's that's the reason Escape looks great is because nobody wanted to. It's almost as as hard to make a bad looking film as it is to make a good looking film. So you might as well work that extra little bit and and make it good. Right. Know, it's very very difficult just to make eighty minutes of anything. So yeah. by the time you're committing to doing that, you might as well dedicate your life to it and have something that you're proud of for a long time after it. Definitely. I liked I liked the joke in the film too. Where like there's the thing with the aliens that have created like all of our awesome technology. I thought it was funny that 
they had also created the CG animation. So I'm I'm glad you like that. We were uh, <laughs> that was something uh, the Weinstein's produced the film. That was something that Harvey was really adamant about. He's said, yeah, I, I really want these aliens to have created all this stuff, all, all the coolest stuff on Earth. And we've kind of, th that idea has been explored in other movies before. So we thought, okay, nope, that's great. Let's, what would our version of the coolest stuff be? And we're complete Apple heads. So we got the, <laughs> the Steve Jobs thing in there and obviously crazy animation fans. So we thought a little tip of the hat to John Lasseter was in, in order. And um, we got this incredible uh, caricature artist to do up those kind of stills. So they're not actual photographs of these people, but they look fantastic. Yeah, those looked great. Uh, so speaking of directing, was that always an, an aspiration of yours to direct a film? Or did that just kind of come about from do, being a storyboard artist and, and whatnot? I'll tell you, when I went to college, I wanted to be an animator. I wanted to be a 2D animator and and dedicated everything I did to, to that aspect of, of uh, school. And when I got, in my very last year of animation school, I, I realized that all of the things that I loved throughout my life, and I was also really into music and uh, did acting and improv and stuff on the side, and I saw that all of these disciplines together you could kind of dip a toe in all of them if if you were working in the directing job. That combined with the fact that I'm pretty good at a lot of things as opposed to really excellent. There were, there were a couple guys in, that I went to school with that were so good, you just looked at their drawings and you got mad. And so <laughs> I was like, I'm never going to be that good because I, I don't go to bed just thinking about shapes and how to put them together in amazing ways. I go to bed thinking about bigger picture stuff and, and directing kind of came into the light at that point for me. I was like, Oh, there's a job for that. That's <laughs> big picture thinking is what the director does. They, the director's job is to hire a designer who's better than they are to hire a camera guy who's better than they are. And kind of, you know, I talked about my job on the film as almost being the, the referee or setting up the goalposts that we had to get through and my hope was that the people that were working on the crew would su surprise me with something I wasn't quite expecting. And my job was to determine, does this fit through the goalpost? Does this still do what it needs to do in the, in the film rather than being exactly the way I would have done it had I drawn it myself, you know? So it's a, it's a fun job from that aspect. I know some directors are kind of like, it's gotta be exactly this way. And, I'm like that with some things, but with other things, uh, if if it's not a hundred percent clear to me, I'm I really want to see what the best idea is that we can we can get from the crew and and get that thing through. Awesome. So, like, as a director and a writer for an animated feature, like, you know, I, I understand like there's a lot of pressure there. So, what like what were your duties on this film? Like, can you just like touch on a couple of them? Sure, absolutely. So. Um, yeah, I guess big picture as a director, your whole day is broken into hour or half an hour chunks and you're trotted around from department to department <laughs> for 10 or 12 hours a day and you sit down and they play you an hour of 
for an hour, you're looking at animation scenes and you're making comments and talking to the artists and, um, you know, uh, trying to communicate the adjustments you'd like. And then they pick you up and they take you off to lighting and you sit down and you watch all the lighting shots and, and same kind of thing day after day after day. And it's great because you're working directly with the artists. And, uh, but that's, that's the truth of how the directing gets done in, in terms of the picture making side is it's just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of meetings over and over and over. And, and you kind of incrementally move towards the goal from a writing perspective. Uh, the plan wasn't to be the writer on this film, although I've been writing for several years. Um, I was hired as a director on this thing and it had been in development and had, uh, you know, several years of different kind of ideas and paths tried out on it, which didn't end up being the way that the studio wanted to go. And they'd hired a, they'd hired a writer and, um, the kind of plan was for me to land on, on the ground here in Vancouver and be ready to go. And they would deliver the new script and we'd get moving on it. And when I got here, the script that arrived didn't work. It wasn't, wasn't very good and, and didn't work for the studio they kind of said, this isn't at all the movie we want to make, so what now? And I looked at that, at that moment, I was like, oh, this is, this is how your first directing shot falls apart. This is when they <laughs> send you back home because there's no script to direct. So I said at that point, I said, hey, let, just let me take a crack at it. I'll write in tandem with the board team, which is a harrowing thing to do. But uh, I said, well, we'll write and board at the same time and we'll stay on schedule and just give us a shot. And in five weeks, check in with us and see what you think. We'll try and get act one together in that time, which is insanely short time, by the way. <laughs> um, and so uh, so that that was that was how the writing came um, came to be. And uh, I, you know, have my writing partner, Bob Barlin. Uh, who I'd been writing with for years in Toronto. As soon as they said, yes, let's try it, I was like, hey, you got to take vacation from your job and come just for a week and help me start writing this thing. And so he came out for a week and then quit his job <laughs> over the phone and stayed for two years and nice. we finished the movie together. So, um, but the process of that was we had storyboard, storyboard artists waiting and so we kind of write till two or three in the morning and then have pages for them at nine to be working on the next day. And, and that was a process throughout the, a lot of the film is we'd be writing basically to feed the machine. Cause once animators are hired and you're starting to chew through footage, it's a, it's a fire that needs to keep getting fed. And so we were kind of really, you hear about people describe it as laying track ahead of the train. This was the, that to the to the nth degree is we were really, uh, you know, writing tomorrow's work for a lot of the process. And what makes writing good and story work good is the ability to revise and change. And so we we had less opportunity to do that because of our our schedule. And it it did make for a pretty pressurized situation where you're going oh my gosh, we got one shot at this and we have to get it right <laughs> at three in the morning tonight so that we can get it to these guys tomorrow. Uh, and uh, But that's the nice thing about writing with a writing partner because you're there to kind of check each other and, and, and make sure the ideas work. And then outside of that, there's the whole working with the actors and, and uh, 
doing all of that stuff, which was fantastic. Uh, voice recording is a blast, and um, and that's that's a kind of whole other whole other part of the job. I, yeah, I, actually, I segueing into that, we were going to ask you. Um, so, how was it working with those? Because I know when I've seen projects at Fisher Price where we have voice actors come in and it and I like to sit in on it it is like the most fun that I ever have is just listening to voice actors do what they do so how was it working with uh, the voice actors for escape uh, it was fantastic um uh really a lot of fun I've, I've done a fair amount of voice directing before so it was quite comfortable and given that I'd written the script I knew what every line was there to do and that was terrific this was uh, the first time I directed celebrities at the level that we had in our film. We had some pretty, uh, pretty famous people, and it was interesting because they would come in, and you you wouldn't have uh, any idea what they were going to be like to work with. And frequently, it was completely the opposite of what you thought. Some people would be. Uh, would be tough and have really strong opinions and push back, which is great. I love that too. And other people, huge celebrities like Sarah Jessica Parker, for example, is this, I'm walking from the hotel to the record, which was just a couple blocks in New York City, passing billboard after billboard of this person and then show up at the studio and she's just this super normal, down to earth, nice, really kind human being. And so <laughs> you're like, oh, I, I thought you might show up with an entourage of people that were kind of making, you must, you must not look at her in the eye. You must only <laughs> say, you know, it could have been that, but it, yeah. but it wasn't. And we didn't have any crazy, crazy experiences on, on this film, but there was certainly working around uh, their schedules and stuff was crazy. You know, we would get uh, Rob Corddry who plays Gary uh, one night. We were getting very close to the end of the movie and we were trying to book him in uh, to record and uh, we couldn't we couldn't get him because he was shooting Warm Bodies, that zombie movie that came oh, yeah. out, which was which mm -hmm. was pretty cool. Um, and I got a call at six p.m. that said, "Hey, uh, Rob can record tomorrow morning in in Montreal." And we're like, "Oh my gosh, we got to fly the red eye tonight." And of course, they were like, "And we want you to write a new scene for him." So we were <laughs> writing on the plane on the way there, and showed up showed up to the recording studio, and he walks in with his ears and fingernails caked with zombie makeup that he couldn't get off. And so it was, it was tricky working around <laughs> these crazy schedules with these guys, but it was a blast. They bring a lot to the table. Um, and, uh, and it's important to, to kind of, uh, let them, let them do what they do while making sure it kind of, again, fits between the goalposts. So you don't necessarily want them to say it the way you say it in your head, you want to find, let them bring what they bring to the table. That's the reason they're, you know, successful at at their craft. Right. I, I know. I know. Most time the actors re record separately, but I know there's also sometimes that they've they're done together. Was there any instances where any of any of them worked together on on this film, or were they all just separately recorded? Uh, they were 99% of the time separately recorded. I think uh, once we patched two people together over the phone. And uh, the other time they kind of overlapped for half an hour and we did a little bit together. But for the most part, because of their crazy schedules, you know, some of the secondary characters we could have in the room together, but that, that you know, didn't, didn't make a significant difference. Cool. Uh, 
you're kind of talking about like with, with like they're making the lines their own. Was there a lot of ad libbing that was that was done for the film, or is it pretty close to what the script was? It's very very close to what the script is, and I don't. I there are actors out there that are ad libbers that are great. Supposedly, they're <laughs> where you kind of hear, and I don't mean. I think our actors were great ad-libbers. It's just that writing a script is difficult and you have to be very, very efficient in your use of language. You don't have a ton of extra words and and in animation you don't have a lot of ums and ahs and, and this kind of stuff. It, it needs to be really tight and economical and that's not the friend of improvisation. What they really end up doing mostly is bringing a flavor to the lines and uh, a performance to, to what's written. And from time to time, you'll get a couple lines different. But on, on Escape, it would be 97% as written. And, and I think it's, and I could be totally wrong here. Some of your, your listeners are going to write in and go, he doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> We've got great ad-libbers. But um, the... Uh, I think for the most part, it's a it's a misconception that movies are are made like that. You know, you look at the UK version of The Office, and everybody everybody always asks Ricky Gervais if that show is how much is ad lib because it looks so natural. And it's like we write every word and we place every comma. Ricky ad libs a bit, but that's kind of it. And and you know, you hear uh, a lot of people ask that, and and the truth is, it's it's very difficult to. Uh, ad lib economically enough to to make it work um, on on a film. I mean, even if you look at a movie like Bridesmaids, which I loved, um, I thought it was super super funny. One of the things that they did is they would ad lib a lot in rehearsal, and they would take ideas from that and write them, and then bring them back to hmm. when they when they were shooting. Now, don't get me wrong, there's still ad libbing going on with that stuff, but. Um, they're really using that as an exploration part of the process rather than expecting to, to figure it out. Yeah. There, there is a, a student film that I, that I did my first year of college where I actually won an award for best screenplay for it, which I'll always think is funny because me and my friend Mike, who did the film, we had, we had written like a basic story for it, but we didn't actually write like any of the dialogue. So I always think it, I'll always think it's funny that I won an award for best screenplay when we didn't really actually. That's very funny. Did you? Were you doing one of the voices? Uh, well, it, it was a live action thing that we did. So we we and him were both in it. So we just basically we knew what we wanted from it. So, so we just ad libbed basically every line as we th- thought of it. I see. I I think that's the thing that makes it unique, and that's I, I mean one of the reasons that Ricky Gervais is is uh, is able to ad lib on The Office, but the other characters not so much as if it's your piece and you're writing it and you know exactly what things need to do that's one thing it's another thing if you're an actor who's you know going back to be a zombie in two hours and meant to come in and go hey i need this line to do exactly this at this point in the script and don't get me wrong uh cordry was hilarious and came up with tons of funny lines but but i think the stuff that really ends up being usable ends up being pretty close to what's written uh, I guess coming from that, or this might be kind of like kind of like one of the which which one of your kids is your favorite thing. But who who was the funniest 
of of the people that were working on the the film do you think well i i think that's such a uh so related to what's written on the page yeah. and so i can answer that cuz it doesn't it doesn't actually i can tell you who my favorite character was to write because they were the funniest and then that's inherently the actor that that uh, i thought was funniest because he had those that part to play it was um, Craig Robinson, who played the character of Doc, the fuzzy guy with big ears, the <laughs> little, little alien, he was by far our funnest, uh, funnest, <laughs> the most most fun character to write on the film, and uh, and so inherently, um, you know, he's the character that you just pick on and laugh at, and and so we uh, we had a great time with him and he was really funny and and at the premiere he was thrilled with how the character came off because he's kind of in terms of laughs he uh, he kind of stole the show but then you look at a, a character like um, Gary as Rob Cordry or or Brendan Fraser as Scorch the, those guys did a great job but they have to carry so much of the plot on their backs as as well that it's not just goofing around whereas the character of Doc, had no narrative purpose, I mean, somewhat, but but not significant. And so you're able to just have fun with those guys. And frequently those are the most fun, whereas Gary, you have to kind of hang this emotional stuff on and the relationship with Scorch and how's that going to play off each other, whereas Doc, you're just, just make us laugh. Let's <laughs> let's have a good time. So um, I, I loved working with everybody on the movie, but, uh, but Doc was was the most fun because I think the pressure was off and Craig is hilarious. And I think the writing is, is for him is really funny. So yeah, that's my, that's my long answer. <laughs> cool. So we touched on like a whole, you know, a lot of the different processes of being a director. What would you say would be like the hardest part of your do uh, job during a filming? I think for, for me, and this is something I haven't mentioned up till now. Um, but is managing the production as a whole, especially on our film there, there were so little resources to go around that it was a constant push and pull in terms of, you just can't have that. Okay. You gotta, you know, that whatever this thing is, you either have to love it or cut it from the film. You can't change it. You know, there was a lot yeah. of those kind of decisions that had to be made and made very quickly on on this movie. And I think that's the most difficult thing is trying to stay on track and make it good and and ride that line constantly. And for me, the big the big challenge was it, trying to make a movie that people would take seriously when they when they went to the theater and you asked them to pay, you know, we asked them to pay the same price that you pay for a ticket to go see Brave or you know, Wreck-It Ralph or one of these amazing films, we have to get it above a certain bar with even with our budget level because people don't care what it costs. They had to go to the theater and pay for it. So uh, that was always the struggle is, is can we get it above that bar in, in all ways uh, w without sacrificing too much? And I, and I think, again, like I mentioned before, it was really about the crew who where we fell short they just wouldn't they wouldn't give up you know at at one point we had a a bit of push and pull with production where they came in and said guys we have to we're we're not going fast enough we have to drop the quality bar and um and i stood up right after and i was like but we're not gonna right guys like we're gonna find a way to make this work 
And they, sure enough, the crew just rallied because they're like, we don't, we don't want to work on a piece of junk. So they just kind of redoubled their efforts and kept the bar uh, where it was and, and just worked harder to, to get us, uh, get us caught up. So that, that was the biggest challenge is always, you know, you look at a film and you think always, oh, that must be a hundred percent of, you know, a director just sits back in a chair and says, give me more monkeys. And they bring out a bunch of monkeys, (laughs) but it's, it really is these just a thousand really difficult decisions is, do you want this or this? And you're like, do you want a good ending or a good beginning? And you're like, it's a movie. I, I need both. So it was, it was a lot of, a lot of really, uh, uh, tough production decisions that, that would have been the, the difficult, uh, part of it. But also again, the most satisfying, you know, because there's a huge sense of pride from the crew of, of what we pulled off. Um, so yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, that sounds like some inspiring teamwork going on there. So that's, yeah, it sounds, you know, amazing. Um, so um, what would you say would be the easiest then, aside from the hardest decisions in a film? I'll, I'll tell you, I think the easiest, the easiest time was when we were busiest on the film because you get into this rhythm about three quarters of the way through production where, you know, you're, you're half done the film and you are into a rhythm every day. You've got all these meetings lined up. Everybody's kind of up to speed. And, well, it's really, the days are exhausting. You come home and just fall on your face. <laughs> but uh, there's something wonderful about that because you're just in it working with the artists. And any kind of politics of starting up the movie have fallen away because everyone knows you just got to now, you're racing for this finish line. And it's really, there's a simplicity it's really hard work, but there's a simplicity and and fun to the middle part of the movie that that I love. I love working with the artists. I had a really personal relationship with, you know, lots of the people on the floor, and like to like to swing by individual artists' desks and and give them notes directly so things wouldn't be lost in translation and stuff. So for me, that was the the easiest part was in the middle when you're just kind of executing. Cool. I guess pulling from from this what what are some of your favorite memories from working on the film well um you know uh i i would say to the point you're making about camaraderie and it being an inspiring environment we had uh when we had to do these kind of big pushes which was quite often as really <laughs> towards the yeah. end um and we were working weekends we had uh you know girlfriends and and wives of some of the guys on the crew would uh come in and just happened to be girlfriends and wives it could have been husbands but it wasn't in our case um came in and would cook these great meals for everybody they would you know making pizzas on the barbecues outside and they would kind of we had the doors open to the studio and there'd be all this food coming by and food carts that's like steak sandwiches and all sorts of great stuff, but homemade. Cause we're, you're always ordering food for the crew during, um, during the film and that's fine, but there's something really, um, intimate about, you know, cooking for people and breaking bread with them and somebody else's, you know, it was a real family atmosphere while we were kind of pushing for the finish line. And, and those, those weekends where the rest of the studio is is quiet because everybody's gone 
gone home, but the few departments that are just going gangbusters are all there and, and everybody's mm. pitch, pitching in. It's like uh, it's like being a kid and being in a clubhouse or something is you really feel like the lunatics are running the asylum and no grown-ups around. It was great. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, totally awesome. So <clears throat> now that uh, planet Earth is, uh, kind of is wrapped up here, um, what will, uh, what's the next project for you? Well, that... That all depends. Uh, Escape has done really well. I mean, for uh, our budget, we're now the, as of, you know, a couple days ago, we're now the highest grossing Weinstein animated film. Yeah. They've done mostly lower budget stuff, but that's that's huge in terms of opening doors and stuff um, for me and, and what comes next. Uh, my writing partner and I have written a new script that I'm dying to make. I would love to, <laughs> I would love for somebody to go, great do that but there's you know it's a, a lot of people have to um get excited about something before it actually gets greenlit uh yeah. so uh truth is i'm i don't know exactly what's next i've just kind of come out of the the dust has just settled from the release of of escape and we're just starting to roll out internationally now uh, over the next couple months so that'll be fun to see as well but um new script is written and i would I will tell you about it when I can, but it's not, uh, not <laughs> okay. at the moment. Um, I'll definitely let you know. Awesome. Uh, would you would you say that that new script that you're writing would be like your dream project to work on since it's kind of something closer to your, your chest? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think it, it certainly would. The other thing I would love to do one day if uh, if I, I know the, the uh, creator has always said, that he would never let it go, but I would love to do a Calvin and Hobbes movie if uh, yeah. if oh, they yeah. if they uh, if uh, Watterson ever changes his mind, I'll I'll be waiting <laughs> at his door doorstep the next day. I don't know if either of you guys saw it. There was a thing on YouTube that looks like whoever put it on YouTube changed it to private, so you can't look at it anymore. But they had animated uh, a few panels from a Calvin and Hobbes. Oh, cool! I never saw it. If you uh, if you ever find it again, send me the link. Yeah, if I find it again, I'll definitely send it to both of you guys. It was actually going to be my my recommendation this week, and then I went to go look for the link, and it wasn't there anymore. So, it, it was cool to see them animated like that, though. Yeah, I think there's something there's something wonderful about that. And you know, he's one of the few guys that drew every panel of everything he ever did. Whereas a lot of the other cartoons are kind of they have a team of guys who draw. You know the characters, and those go out to those go out to the magazines, and it becomes this kind of business of making this cartoon. And Watterson just did everything himself, which is, a, you know, amazing for how much work he put out too. And those those books have such a charm to them. The characters are amazing. So that would be a fun world to play in, I think. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. So I guess uh, kind of ending, wrapping things up here. Uh, what? Like we have a lot of listeners that are, you know, just starting off in, you know, their animation careers. And if like one of those listeners, you know, wants to aspire to be a director, what advice could you give them? Um, hmm. Well, I would I would say it's a tough one um, <laughs> to work on your workaholism because you yeah. <laughs> need to be good at 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 working yourself into uh, it's a. Uh, I would say work on your storytelling, work on uh, writing, because those two aspects um, are really the most important thing. Learning to communicate through images and then learning to communicate through words 
Um, I would read the book On Directing Film by David Mamet. Uh, it's a it's a very thin little book, but the first time I read it, it kind of just blew my hair back. I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> this is this is amazing. Um, and uh, and then I would say work on your work on your drawing primarily because um, communicating ideas is is really important. That's I work on your drawing and work on your writing because you have to be able to explain to people what you want either in word form or in picture form. And so uh, those those would be the the things that that I would say and watch a lot of movies and read a lot of scripts and uh, and from an animation side from people just getting into the animation business and trying to to figure out what to do um, I would say try and as long as you can take make every career decision that you can based on uh, trying to learn more um, as opposed to you know trying to earn more look for opportunities that will make you better at the thing you want to do. If you want to be an animator, better to go work at a higher end place for less money and learn some of these tricks of the trade and, and have your work critiqued at that level than, you know, take a higher salary doing kind of crappy work that you're just pushing out because you will end up doing, you know, moving up at the level that you choose for yourself. And if it's just kind of, grunt work then that's where you'll stay but if you kind of fight to keep learning all the time um then then you know it's the best job in the world if you can if you can earn a living doing what you love there aren't many people who get to do that on this planet and we're we're lucky awesome awesome yeah that was some great advice you know i know i have a lot of students that are going to listen to that too so very inspiring thank Good. you yeah. thanks so much guys uh and kind of one last thing, I guess. Uh, Matt and I earlier in, in this episode gave recommendations to stuff we've watched recently. Is there anything that you would like to recommend that you watched recently or read or anything you'd want people to check out? Well, I just recently, it's a, it's it's nothing uh, new. Escape from Planet Earth. You should go yeah. see that. That's a, um, it's a, I was watching Iron Giant again, which is my favorite animated movie. And... It's so good, and it's such a clean telling of a story. It doesn't have all sorts of um, crazy kind of artifice stuck on the surface. It's just a really heartfelt, clean, clear, um, moving story. And if anybody hasn't seen The Iron Giant, you should call in sick tomorrow and make sure to see <laughs> it. So that, that's what I've been watching recently. I've seen it too many times to count. Hopefully we get a Blu-ray release for that pretty soon. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. All right, Cal, uh, Matt, and I definitely want to, want to thank you again for, for coming on. We really, really appreciate it a lot. Well, thanks so much, Mark and Matt. Really appreciate uh, you guys having me on the podcast. Uh, and where where can people find you on online if they want to check you uh, out? Sure, at Twitter, I'm at uh, what is it? At Cal Brunker, uh, C A L B R U N K E R. And uh, my writing partner and I keep a blog up. That's calandbob.com. And so when we do uh, get another movie up and can talk about it, you'll hear about it there first. Awesome. So, there it is. Cool. So, yeah, thanks again for coming on. Uh, we'll let you get back to your Sunday evening. Uh, so, yeah. yeah thanks so much, guys. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. Keep, keep up the good work. Talk to you soon. Thanks. Later. <laughs> awesome. Thanks. Bye. Bye.
All right, everyone, that's our show for today. I want to thank Cal again for coming on. Uh, don't forget, you can follow us individually on Twitter. I'm at Mark Vibbert, M-A-R-C-B-I-B-B-E-R-T. And I'm at Questpact, Q-U-E-S-T-P-A-C-T. You can also follow our show at Animated Podcasts. Uh, feel free to email us at animationfascinationpodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already regularly check out our site, definitely do that now. We have news going up there all the time now with all our new writers. Uh, animationfascination.wordpress.com. Again, we are working on trying to get rid of that WordPress. There's a guy that owns animationfascination.com, and we're going <laughs> to take it out from underneath him. So, <laughs> so ho- hopefully that'll be easier for you guys to just type that in later this year, but we're working on that. Uh, also, like us on Facebook. We're around 330 likes right now, so trying to hopefully maybe hit 400 by the end of March. Probably won't, but try anyways. Uh, and again, if you like our show and you want to recommend it to other people, please go on iTunes, give us a review. The more reviews we have, the more people are, the more our podcast will show up in searches on iTunes and more people will be able to check it out and listen to it. So that's our show for the day. I'm Mark Vibbert. For myself, Matt Quest, and our guest, Cal Brunker, thank you for listening, and make sure to tune in again next time, guys. Later. Woo! All right. Good night, Mark. Night. Count from one to ten And open them All these heavy thoughts We'll try to weigh you down But not this time Way up in the air You're finally free Can you, uh, oh, yeah, there's our first blooper, guys. Sorry. <laughs> Just in case you haven't listened to our podcast before, hopefully you have, but if you haven't, uh, we've, yeah, and, um, blooper. Crap. <laughs> and you should have said our interview will be pretty awesome. Oh, yeah. Showing. I'm excited. Uh, the good dinosaur, um, it, it's going to be, uh, Looper me out on that one. <laughs> um, what are we talking about? Good dinosaur. All right. <clears throat> yeah. Okay, here we go. I actually did not see the first one, oh, so man, you, we, watch uh, we... <laughs> you might want to cut that. <laughs> Is there like some hidden meaning behind that picture, Phil? And then you see a little bit of his crack. Phil, <laughs> crack. In. Well, and there's there's banana in his locker too. Yeah. So for myself, Matt Quest, and our guest, Cal Bunker. Oh, damn it. <laughs> Oops.